welcome uh, Derek and Lawrence, Career in Ruins, uh, for another Time Team session. Very nice to see you. Uh, I'm going to start off with a nice simple question. Um, I'm appointing you to joint leaders of the official Time Team University Academy for learning of stuff about archaeology. <laughs> And you've both been archaeologists, you've both been academics and things. In order of priority, I'd like you to spin off what are the most important skills students or somebody at home who's interested in archaeology should begin with? What are the what are the one thing, the set of things that they need to learn from their university courses and they're going to go away with? And how would you prioritize this? And uh, I'll start with Lawrence. Oh, I was hoping you'd start with a university lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, there is so many. The, the thing that, that springs to mind immediately are, are transferable skills, things that I, I, I always sell myself as an expert generalist. <laughs> so I like to know a little bit about everything and not a lot about anything in particular. So the so, opening um, course for all your students who paid nine grand to come to the <laughs> university, we probably charge a bit less than that because it's time team. They paid nine grand, lesson one, Lawrence, transferable skill. <laughs> Absolutely, it served me well. <laughs> right, well, thanks for that, Lawrence. Derek? Um, no, no, let me explain, let me explain. Oh, you're right, okay. <laughs> um, but th this idea of, of, of perhaps pigeonholing yourself, I think, is what I'm trying to get, get away from. So um, there, there, there are places for people that are experts, in particular beetles, for example, or something like that. But being able to, do, to use technical skills on things like GIS, on survey equipment, on understanding, the, reading the landscape, understanding and excavation as a whole is, is really important. And having a grasp of, on many things rather than just, just really honing in too soon at least. That's great. Okay, Derek, we're not going to let get you get away. You're, you're the chief honcho at this new university <laughs> offering degrees for incredibly cheap uh, <laughs> rates. Um, what, the main subject, priority list of subjects you think we should be teaching the students? See, I'm going to go back to your question about the single most important thing, I think. And I think for me, it's something that transcends all specialisms and all of archaeology. And it's, it's the idea of context and the concept of context. I think when I went into my undergrad, I was thinking about treasure. I was thinking about Indiana Jones. I was thinking about Tony fishing a pot out of some disturbed soil on Time Team. But I wasn't, I, I wasn't aware of the importance and value of context, both as a digger in terms of the, the bit of soil that something came from and what that can tell you about a site in terms of the landscape, in terms of where your site is, how it relates to other things. So I think the thing that kind of percolates through all archaeology, especially I'd argue in, in the British tradition, is the idea of context and using context to understand a site, a monument, a landscape, a country, a state, whatever. It's that, that fundamental principle that kind of underpins everything we do as archaeologists and without it we're just digging holes. Moving on Derek then, some of the basic skills, if you know, you, if, you, if there's not something called context, <laughs> what, what, is the, the, what would be the priority for you to teach your students? And you're, you're teaching students at the moment, aren't you? So. Yeah, I mean that's just it because one of the things Lawrence mentioned is the, the breadth of experiences and knowledge you have to give them in the first year so they can see everything. But I think if you were to, if you were to back me into a corner and say, you've got to say one thing that turns a undergraduate student into an archaeologist. And 
a proper technical skill. I'd say being able to experience and differentiate very subtle changes in soil, actually getting in the ground, touching the dirt, feeling the difference between a loose, humic topsoil and a sandy clay fill, even if we don't have the language and the grammar and the vocabulary for it, but just being able to differentiate between different deposits, different fills, different features and structures on a site. So that that knowledge is only really gained by doing it. It's one of the, the biggest... Um, uh, restrictions we're finding at the moment with COVID because how how can we possibly teach that remotely that's something you have to be there for but it is the time and it's one of my favorite times on any archaeology degree and I've seen it year after year after year where students go from having read books played on GIS done a bit of mapping done a bit of survey but all of a sudden an understanding changes the minute they that that skill clicks in and they get a sense for just how much knowledge you can get from a very basic understanding of what's going on in the soil and seeing the differences and seeing the colour, uh, colour changes and textural changes. And it's, it's such a, it's a, it's, it's a skill that's hard to teach, but when you see it click in a student's brain, it's fantastic. And they become very useful as an archaeologist after that. I remember Phil talking with someone we had on site once about how through the trowel he felt a particular surface, a particular soil was sort of grittier than the layer above or below. That it was actually that that act of drawing a trowel through the, the, the earth, you're feeling the, the sensations through your hand. And, and it was quite a delicate process watching him. And I think that's, that's a very good point, yeah. It can be so momentary as well. Um, when you're when you are traveling you'll you'll feel the change you'll feel the difference you might see it you might you might even smell it even but um within an hour the soil's dried the texture's changed and it's that change is gone and it's it's the skill of the archaeologist in that moment to, to feel and experience that that shift in context that shift in a in a fill which is is so valuable what, what i just come in with there is that um derek's absolutely right but what What's nice about what you just said is transferable to so many aspects of so many skills within archaeology. So even talking about um, going through the different layers or understanding, getting to grips with those contexts is something that's relatively transferable to someone doing an earthwork survey, for example, and understanding those slight changes in, in how that, that topography is changing and where that rampart is or where that the surviving aspect of that castle turret might be. Um, and and understanding how to map that and then understanding how to transcribe that into a visualization that actually means something and i think i guess that and that's transferable to so many different disciplines within our own discipline we're a really broad church and you'll have seen this over all the years of the productions that you've done tim and the different specialists and the different experts and the, the different takes that each person whether they're a specialist in pots and and or whether a, a geophysicist and, and john's knowledge of just the readings that appear on different geologies and um it's that that ability and you must see this perhaps with your students as well derek then each one that suddenly gets that light bulb moment is oh actually that change in the soil is what what's really caught my attention oh actually um understanding how this geophysics works is what's really caught my attention and i don't know if you had a similar experience of going out on a bus trip with john gale in your first year and looking out the bus windows as he was kind of narrating the landscape as you moved through it and that 
that kind of uh, piecing apart the stratigraphy of the landscape, the anthropogenic from the from the natural. It was it was a wonderful moment to have. I think it was a, the first week field trip, in fact, just going out and and that lump and bump over there is a hill fort. That lump is a barrow, and just the oh my god, it's everywhere. <laughs> it reminds me of Stuart in his little yellow notebook and pencil, um, and I think watching Stuart in that landscape, Lawrence, that you were talking about, um, and those lumps and bumps, and the act. Mick often used to say, you, you look at something, you appreciate something by drawing it. Mm. And seeing um, Stuart trying to sketch hatch lines around a lot of subtle lumps and bumps in a field always felt to me the sort of pre-activity before. I'm getting slightly Harry Potter-esque notions here. Somewhere in there I see... The, the wand of Harry Potter, a bit like the trowel of the archaeologist. And I'm not sure which lecturers I'm thinking of, but um, Stuart's notebooks having a sort of slightly magical, uh, you know, a kind of uh, magical realist quality to them. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, what that immediately makes me think of is, isn't the primary skill of archaeology geophysics? I mean, we both do geophysics and we use it an awful lot, so we we can't slander it too much. It's a valuable skill without question, but I, yeah. Oh, come on, you've got to, I think you've got to accept that here we have, you have, whether you realise it or not, archaeologists, one of the most magical bits of kit Mm. I've ever seen. I mean, I was in a field near to me, flat field with cows in it literally uh, we shoot the cows out put a geophysicist in there and um about a day later i was looking at a cornish round with ditches and maybe roundhouses in it and i would not have known there were lumps and bumps i was going to say what made you put a geophysicist in there? <laughs> well partly because um an aerial picture that I ah, see. aerial photography. No, we were going to have to a lot of multitasking in this university. I can see it coming I mean, up. We are, we are working our way through my first year archaeological practice. You know, one lecture <laughs> at a time. We're aerial photography. Well, you, I, I would. I, the the interesting thing about that field happens to be that one thing that we you haven't mentioned yet. And I'm just, I've got voices from Time Team members in my ear, John sitting there going, geophysics, geophysics. I've now got somebody going, maps, get them to read the bloody maps, get the OS. You know, that initial paperwork view of a site is surely very important. So shouldn't we have a how to read a map properly department? What's what's really exciting, I think, in this day and age as well, not least for students of this fantastic university that we're going to start up, but also for <laughs> any enthusiasts that might be out there or local interest group, is that the resources online in this mm. day and age are just incredible. In, even if you're just thinking about um, your local historic environment resources, the majority of those are now online, but you also get um, particular regional resources like um, Bristol's Pass or New Forest Knowledge, things like that. Um, 
Heritage Gateway is, in, is a fantastic resource which tells you all the known archaeological sites in a particular area. Then you've got things like the uh, is it National Library of Scotland, which oh, have all the historic maps available, and they've now brought in the Environment Agency LIDAR data. So anyone that wants to get to grips with maps, with remote sensing, with archaeological sites, it's at, literally at their fingertips in this day and age. Knowing what to look at and where to look look for it is, is, a, is an important part. But once you've got both that key, you, you're away. I, I must admit, the last couple of years of, of teaching, uh, it is first year archaeological practice, the, the resource that's out there makes it so easy to set good homework that people can do really well. I can say, take, take the town you grew up and go and do a map regression. Here's a resource. And they can do it and they can work back through time. Go and look at the LIDAR. Here's a resource. And they can download it and look at it. Uh, when we were watching that episode earlier, I was, I was looking at it and thinking, we have got it made now. I mean, yeah. my word, it's so much easier than it <laughs> yeah, was yeah. 20, 23 years ago. My word, um, we are so lucky. And you're talking about St Mary's City, which you, you kindly... Uh, view for me, which we'll, we'll get to fairly soon. Um, but going back to our our course and our department, I imagine a fairly um, interesting staff room equipped with a degree of highly eccentric various experts in various things. And in order to start the first year project off, um, there's certain basic things we want to get in place. We have a site, maps are being done, um, Lawrence has got his GIS lectures, Derek you've done a resources online section, aerial photographs important, tide maps important and we've had um, an art department with little yellow books and pencils and the students have said what the hell are these and <laughs> take them out and draw that landscape so I can understand what the lumps and bumps are which I still think is a I always like to watch it as a skill, but I'm quite old fashioned. So we've got the GIS and everything. Geophysics mm -hmm. then goes in and blows all of that away <laughs> because suddenly you can see, in the case of the site I was looking at, which I'll show you a picture of, um, um, I've got a bank, a hundred meter wide circle with a ditch outside. The geophysics can tell me the depth. They can tell me high, high mag, high res. They can tell me metal working areas. Um, and suddenly we're opening the world of science. All these mucky archaeologists are turning up with white coats and are suddenly looking highly scientific. When that science hits, isn't that the ultimate excitement and revelation? Can you remember, Derek, your first great geophysics set of results? Because you've Absolutely. done that sometimes. I, I, can, I can remember clearly the first geophysical plot I ever did personally on a site where I'd led it. But also, I'm just going just gonna to do a quick shout out for chemistry here as well, because I remember the first time I've, I got blown away by spatial geochemistry. And it's... It is proper Star Trek stuff. It's it's sci-fi. It's it's taking. I think a you're going to have to explain spatial spatial oh, yeah. geochemistry, so Derek. So you take something. <laughs> Say that again, Lawrence. Is that in RGIS lectures? <laughs> Sometimes. No. <laughs> so so we go out. We take a little instrument that looks like a ray gun. It looks or a tricorder if you watch Star Trek, and it it analyzes the chemical composition of whatever you put in front of it. 
So it was designed, initially designed for the Mars rover, so for analysing soils. So this is the Mars. portable XRF, is it? Yeah, Gary? so it's, it's called an X-ray fluorescent analyzer, or in this instance, a portable X-ray fluorescence. Analyzer. You can get one for Christmas on Amazon, guys. Yeah, 25 um, to £30,000, cheap at half the price. Yeah, start saving now, but you definitely want one of these things because they are amazing. Why are they amazing, Derek? No, it, it will never replace geophysics, but it will complement it. Because let's say you've got your magnetometry in your brilliant Iron Age round and you found a, a kind of a high magnetic anomaly and you're saying, well, it could be, this could be metalworking, it could be, it could be bronze production, it could be bronze casting. I can take my my soil analyzer, look at the chemistry of the soil and see the traces of that copper, see the traces of the ingredients, the, the pollution from that furnace and spatially map it alongside the geophysics. And then you can go back to Lawrence's GIS lecture and stick it all together and overlay it. But it's just another layer of human activity made evidenced in the soil that can be seen in a way that now we can access. I mean, in, within my lifetime, when I was starting out in archaeology, an XRF would take up maybe a quarter of a room, whereas now it fits it fits in my hand. It's it's incredible, and not least for the soil stuff. But if I dig up an artifact that I don't know the composition, if I've got an XRF there, I can tell you what it is in 30 seconds. It's it's a remarkable tool for an archaeological site. And the excitement we had recently, I was talking to you about it recently, the um, Nebra Sky Disc, a Bronze Age site in Germany, XRF'd it, they found the gold came from Cornwall mm. and the tin in the bronze came from Cornwall as well. This is, you know, Bronze Age, how did that get there? Lawrence? I'm going to give you in charge for a day of the drone department. <laughs> uh, there's an ex-military uh, pilot with one eye missing, probably, and a bit of a limp. And he or she is going to be in charge of the drones. Tell me what you can stack on a drone and how big a thing does it have to be to oh, get well, a drone up there and what's it going to do for us? Well, first of all, it doesn't have to be big at all. Some of these fantastic compact ones now that just in your backpack and you're away it means that we can get to some really remote sites without having tons of heavy batteries and um and lots of heavy equipment so that that's exciting in its own right so uh, as long as they have to go for a hike we're going to go get, get get lost somewhere um but also just the role of cameras in this day and age is is past so many options so thing, things like laser scanners lidar um, terrestrial laser scanners are powerful and they have their place, but if we're, if we're working in open landscapes in particular, the drone and the camera are king. <laughs> and, um, and it's not just about using um, the camera on the drone to take lovely photographs, to pick up crop marks or to help us map and record extant archaeological features, but we can also use techniques such as photogrammetry whereby we can make really high resolution 3D models of the landscape and then pull out those lumps and bumps we were talking about, perhaps even identify really subtle features that uh, are very, very hard to see with, with the naked eye. Um, spatially rectify those, inform our understanding of that archaeological site, that landscape. Uh, and then we can always pull in other types of cameras which look at um, different light spectrums that Again, I know we might touch on this on today's episode, but um, this whether it's um, false colour imagery, near infrared, multispectral imagery, all of this, particularly in areas such as crops, can help to put features that aren't visible to the naked eye, aren't visible to normal red, blue, green photography. Um, and that, that little compact drone um, suddenly gives us loads more information. I think and I'd agree. Now, 
And now, okay, I'm I'm going to, uh, uh, sorry Derek, you'll have to say that again. I was going to say, I would, if you gave me the choice between a, a small backpack, basic camera drone and a big heavy LiDAR drone, I'd take the small one that I could take anywhere and capture things in the moment, in the blink of an eye. Um, an example, we did some work in Greece, and I think it's published now so I can talk about it, and we got snow marks on our site. Um, actual snow marks on a Greek archaeological site, it was fantastic. You could see where the buried stones were, the snow was melting, and in, it, it was it was a phenomenon that existed for an hour in time, and we happened to be there, and we had a drone in our backpack. Lawrence got it out and, and took a photo. Um, just phenomenal. Um, okay, so I think we've sort of danced around away from the, the, the actual excavation for too long. We're now in there. Um, I once saw an amazing picture of a group of archaeologists in Africa and when before they started work, they oiled the shafts of the shovels and sharpened the front edges. And I would make a case for a department of looking after your tools. <laughs> you know, because I rather despair about the slightly modern sort of, you know, just grab whatever tools we've turned up with. They're all rough as rats and rusty and all the rest of it. And to see someone mm-hmm. care for a shovel, sharpen the edge, I would have a group of first-year students sharpening shovels. I was going to say, we've got one of those. His name's Damien, and he oversees the first-year students sharpening shovels. <laughs> what he's sharp- oh, he sharpens them for them? Or he, yeah, oh, no, 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 he whips them into shape, definitely. <laughs> okay, so here we are. We're, 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 we're in now. We've got the LIDAR. We've got everything. We're going to do that first excavation. Um, you need the skill to know where you're going to put it, don't you? We have project managers. How do you teach project management skills to a group of students? Or how do you tell them, I take my Cornish round with an entrance, where are you going to put the hole? It's a good question. Do you want to go with Lawrence or shall I? <laughs> um, this is what, I mean, it is one we teach. Um, and uh, my, my colleague, uh, Tim Darvel, um, teaches a unit in the final year on this very subject. Um, named archaeological management and he essentially gives them a DBA for a site so a desk-based assessment all of the material we've talked about including geophysics including all of the information you can access on a site and basically says where are you going to dig tell me where you're going to dig and justify it you've got all of the evidence you've got all of it there and then we talk through it collectively we talk through it as a group and we we argue over it and there's never a right or a wrong answer there's you have to consider the resources the time if you've got three days to do it how many trenches is that in england versus north america you've got to take all of these time considerations into account budgetary stuff and at that stage let the student have a go and then tell them why they're right tell them why they're okay right. well this being time team of course you've only got a three-day dig so the decision you made about where the trench is is pretty mm-hmm. critical. Lawrence, you've got around, you've come across some of those. Oh, and by the way, could you put up a link to your LIDAR pictures that you did with the National Park to show people what a, a LIDAR landscape looks like? Because that's incredible. Um, if you're making a choice about where to put that excavation, Lawrence, where, where are you going to go for if you're the guy in charge? Or the okay, well, first of all, I'm going to get a nice 3D map. Or a plan, three plan. Get our get our have our get our planners results in, and I'm gonna get Derek's geophysics and geochemical results and overlay that. Um, and I'm gonna look for 
spots that I think are going to give us the most information about the site, so help to inform our understanding, because that's the crux of it, isn't it? We're not just digging for digging's sake, we're digging to learn and understand what that site was, how old it, how old, how old it is, um, who potentially built it and why. Um, so identifying site areas within that those data, all those different layers of information to to inform our decisions. That might be, as Derek suggested, a hearth that's got a high um, content of uh, bronze or copper or whatever it may be, so that that seems like an obvious target, um, and, and then ensuring that, that that trench location and size is to the right scale that's going to give us the right information. So a, a metre square test pit perhaps isn't ideal in this situation. But a, a larger one might help with us. And you go, you go back to those P, PPG sixteen things, Derek, don't you? Where you're, you know, the extent, the condition, the sort of things that we had to tell people so that they can decide to schedule the site or not. There's a certain set of information that other people need about what you've done. So just out of interest, it's the time of code, um, COVID. We've got. Um, the usual university minibus that's travelled for hours on the motorways and it's arrived in a field and you've got five students. How are you going to get them onto the site digging safely at the time of COVID? Now you've, you've, you've hit a nail on a very, very in vogue head there um, because we're having these conversations very actively at the moment. Um, and the actual being on the site isn't an issue at all. You could have a long, thin trench and social distancing very easily and answer an awful lot of archaeological questions there. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd try to make a case for putting it through the entranceway as well just to get a little a little bit of an understanding of that but that's by the by the the problem will be getting them there and as you say the minibus ride is not ideal from the covid perspective and certainly the way i'd plan on doing it at the moment is small small bubbles doing small targeted projects um seeing things from beginning to end in a way ordinarily we'll we'll take 60 odd students out in a big trench that's been stripped already and they'll dig some features under covid i think we've got and a unique advantage where we can take students out into smaller groups, um, into into more kind of concise sites, and they can see the process from stripping the topsoil right the way through to backfilling in small social bubbles. And I think that's the only way, at the moment, in the current conditions, we'll be able to do it. But Lawrence, and how I, much, Lawrence? Yeah. I, well, one thing I would add is that our our, um, our university is very keen to bring in experts from the profession, and um, I'd be very keen to bring in um, the commercial archaeologists that have been working through lockdown throughout this whole lack of the, um, this whole COVID situation, who have had to come up with the, the processes that they have to work to ensure that HS2 is carried on, that development is carried on, and they have been critical workers. So those guys are the experts, and they're the ones that. We're going to bring in to tell us how to do it. I think. Absolutely, because <laughs> they deserve it. I mean, they work blooming hard in doing yeah. difficult situations. I think it's well worth a shout out on this as well. I don't know if you've seen it, Lawrence. I think it was LP Archaeology has put together some online resources for COVID safe archaeology or COVID respecting archaeology. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's on the LP Archaeology website. A really valuable suite of resources, as well as the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists. They've done a lot of good stuff as well. Okay, so I'm going to give, we've got still got these five students standing there waiting to do something. I'm going to give each of them a test pit suitably distanced from each other. How much do you think a student could get? Because we did a lot of test pits with Dig Village and with Mick 
when we were doing uh, the work with him often, he loved test bits. He had, it was a real believer in them. If you put a student into a test bit and he knows the rules, knows the layers, knows what he must do and all the rest of it, how, how good can digging a test bit be in terms of showing somebody the basics of, of excavation? Um, it, they can be really beneficial. Um, I think you popped along to, in, in my previous post, we had a, a test bit exercise in a village in Burley in the New Forest. And um, this, in terms of a teaching exercise and a, a way of engaging locals with, with the process of archaeology and excavation, um, it, it, it can be really beneficial. I know people like Carenza Lewis has had a huge benefit so in terms of engaging a whole range of different um, audiences and, and gain some really useful detailed information about the history and the archaeology of her science. And, I, and Derek, your feeling about why aren't, how many students can actually leave uh, with an archaeology degree never having dug anything? I, I, I would argue none, hopefully, um, but we'll, we'll, I'll let you know in a year or two's time. <laughs> but I don't I, mean at your place, but I mean, <laughs> I, we've had students coming on to Time Team sites who've done an archaeology degree. And, and they've done actually very little excavation. I, I think there's something that's worth worth flagging up here now, and that's um, the Chartered Institute that Lawrence mentioned earlier have recently brought in accreditation for archaeological programmes. And what that allows universities to do is apply for accreditation, but in a very broad spectrum of areas so it doesn't they don't necessarily have to be frontline diggers they don't necessarily have to have that in there but within the accreditation process there is it will it will highlight the strengths of any particular program any particular university so if a university specializes in spatial archaeology and does very little digging they can still get accreditation based on that but it it draws out i think it it forces universities to highlight their strengths and market those areas whereas a university like bu kind of it's usp it's 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 prime selling point is practical archaeology so there's there's still i think a case to be made for not just looking at the degree or the program or the name of it but where someone's come from and what sort of program they've been through is it accredited is it not accredited and what's it been accredited for um so and there's so I, I'm going to push you on the test bit thing. Mm. I mean, Carenza's programs, which she was doing for schools, um, was actively encouraging school kids to get out there and dig a test bit. Um, and I think the people we observed from a range of different experiences found the discipline of doing a test bit quite mm. something. You know, it seemed to involve very similar skills, use of the trowel, the way the way the 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 fines were managed and things like that it was all there in that single test bit i'm wondering whether students shouldn't be encouraged to get out of their halls of red residence and dig some test bits in the uh you know the grounds or perhaps not i i I'd argue, I'd say yes. I mean, a test bit is a great way to experience archaeology. It is a genuinely enriching experience. I would say it, it's enriching, but it's also limited. There are very limitations to the test bit in terms of if you are a, let's say you come down on a ditch, an Iron Age ditch on a, on a round near your house, for example, near your place, and that test bit is located right on the edge of the ditch and you've got a line going down the middle. Now, you as an archaeologist have to decide which is the most recent context, what's the latest thing to remove it first. And it's, it can be, in a test bit, a real struggle to make that decision. So while 
in terms of the kind of the safety of the archaeology, you'll be recording both anyway. But in terms of an understanding of that feature, I don't think you'll get it to the same degree in a test bit, but you will get an understanding of the soil and the feel and the, the recovery of artifacts and a sense of archaeology. But I, I, I'd like to imagine anyone who kind of experiences archaeology either for the first time or continually will have a go at test bits, have a go at trenches, have a go at open area, have a go at box grids, and experience a breadth of different approaches um, and different styles because different methods can give you different answers and you need to ask the right question and the right question often is is to do a test bit that will give you the answers you need in other contexts maybe less so. It's a very good point, Derek, that, you know, we came across quite a bit on Time Team, that, uh, that often a trench can be too small mm -hmm. to understand a feature. And in fact, particularly uh, when we were in the Iron Age or uh, Anglo-Saxon sites, perhaps, a big area of, of stripped off the surface, and that was the only way you could see those features. If you just dropped into a little area, you'd miss it. Lawrence, oh. how do you feel about the practicalities of... You were doing test bits with your guys. Do you think it's a good learning tool and should be in our department? Should it, should we have the whole university doing test bits one day a week? Uh, I think Derek makes some really important points there. I'd, I'd also say the um, context of which these test point, these test test pits are being dug is important. Um, so just digging a test pit, finding a load of stuff, and sticking it back in the ground is no good. But having it as having a systematic approach such as that pulled together. By Carenza and Dig School with the Council for British Archaeology, and uh, making sure you're following best practice, recording correctly, sharing your results as part of a larger project, ideally. Um, so one test pit on its own can prove interesting, but the context is is perhaps lost. But multiple test pits across multiple gardens in it in one location can provide slightly more information. Very good. And that goes back to Derek's point about the, the desk-based analysis and the kind of thing Tim Darch was talking about, where you're trying to make um, strategic decisions about what kind of excavation um, is going to give you the answers you need. Uh, we were always being asked, what question are you trying to answer? Mm. What do you want to find from this? And I think asking the right question is a big part of people's understanding about archaeological sites. Um, I'm going to bring us to a sort of close at the point where we've nearly got the trenches open, the students are still standing there sharpening their spades, um, and we'll move on to other aspects of excavation, finds, management, post-excavation, things like that. Um, uh, you were kind enough, I, I think you managed to, both of you, perhaps have a look at a time team which was, was fairly ancient. Uh, Derek, what were your responses to it and, and what things did you remember? Oh, it's, it's a really interesting episode. And what I, what I like a lot about it is it's the era I started watching Time Team. In. It's very much, um, I was 14 years old, coming home from school, watching, watching Time Team and getting into archaeology and thinking about degrees and things. So it was perfect for me. Um, a few things struck me in that episode. It, it's how much the world we exist in has changed in on many levels um, from the technology the archaeologists are using the way in which they're interpreting data the way in which they're using data but also some of the social aspects as well a little bit um, archaeology to me and something that's very good about archaeology at the moment is it gives you it's a tool for looking at narratives on all sides 
And something that struck me about that episode is it's very much the, it's retelling the story of the colonial narrative, which is fine. There's, I'm not, I'm not criticizing that by any stretch. It, it's of its time. But I think if you were to make that episode today, you'd have a much more balanced narrative there and you'd, you'd ask the question slightly differently, I think. Derek? I'd agree, sorry, with, <laughs> I, I'd agree with that, I think. And I, that's almost perfectly demonstrated in the episode itself in that when you revisit the mm. house and excavate the house and you find that information that, that, you, that wasn't seen by the previous excavator because mm. there's a level of the masonry that he hadn't identified or recorded and that's because you're asking different questions to when the original excavator was there and you're looking for different things. And I think Derek's absolutely right. It, the episode's of its time and it would be, um, it, if it were to be remade today, there'd be some very different questions around the history of colonialism and also St Mary's itself as a city and its tobacco trade and its links to slavery. And uh, Derek, memorable moments in the show for you, things that you remember? Um, one of the most enjoyable elements of that show for me was Stuart and his his sort of monofocus and his ability to kind of fight off everyone else at all stages. And and I, I actually when I was watching it, I, I felt myself wanting to ask you how how much had sort of behind the scenes, how much of that argument carried on? Where where we where were you placed in that? Were you kind of egging egging Stuart on to kind of get more and more focused on his interpretation or were you saying, nah Stuart, you're wrong. What are you talking about? I think you were often we deliberately allowed Stuart his head because he would always walk in after we'd been at it for a day or two and say, well either you're in the wrong place or you're looking at it in the wrong way. <laughs> and, and that was always great. It was completely unexpected, and uh, and that that was a great a great function. Um, Lawrence, do you remember the the the, the burial excavations and the, the pipe facet mm -hmm. was one of the things that I yeah. seeing that was was I don't know why that was so extraordinary that somehow the, the somebody smoking a pipe all those years ago. And we were able to find that information. That was one of my favourites. What about you? Any moments that stood out? Well, I think that was that was particularly nice. I think the skeletons are quite hard to relate to at times, unless you can tell the size of them or the, the gender. They can be quite hard on to to add a human aspect to it. So to see that pipe mark is, is suddenly gives you a character of that individual and their personality and a regular smoke pipe. So I can completely understand um, why you thought that. Um, for, for me, as I think it ties back a bit to what Derek when Derek first mentioned the episode while we were talking about Ohio University, but the the leap and change of technologies and approaches to uh, your GISs that you have in there and your, your aerial photography, the methods are the all the, the groundings are the same. So you're using historic maps, you're using aerial photographs, historic aerial photographs. But the computers and even the hardware issues you have um, from yeah. whether it's the geophysics themselves, which a single probe analog recorder versus what we see today with a multi-array um, geophysical equipment that's pulled by a quad bike. Um, it's, yeah, again, as Derek says, I'm very pleased to have been a 10 and 11 year old watching that rather than have been the professional doing it. <laughs> and that. The other thing about that site as well that you must have experienced, because Derek, you you've uh, excavated with with the Greeks, Greek mm -hmm. archaeologists, 
um, uh, Lawrence, you've been out to Easter Island. And um, here we are, you know, back then we were going out to America and meeting up with another archaeological culture mm. was quite strange. I mean, that those long-handled hoes that they loved and the, their different way of regarding everything, every piece of archaeology, because they have proportionally less than we did. That cultural adaptation, I think that's probably another department. You know, if you're going out somewhere, you've got to learn and, and work with people who may look at archaeology very differently from you. Derek, what, what do you think? I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, Lawrence and I had a, a brief chat after we both watched the episode earlier. And something that sprung to mind as a, as a potential first year unit, and it's actually something I'm going to bring into my teaching now because I'd, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, is we, I, I like to think as a British archaeologist, I do things very well and we do things within our cultural discipline very well, I think. Um, but everywhere I've ever worked does things differently and it's not wrong it's different for its own reasons it's got its own historical background it's got its own historical trajectory the the russians dig in a certain way because that is their tradition and it's come from something there's reasons for that likewise with the greeks the slovenians serbians spanish um, the americans i've worked with and no one's right or wrong they're just asking different questions in a different way and i suspect i've been guilty of churning out very blinkered students who are used to british archaeology and would look at that and go what are you doing there? Whereas we should be, we should be opening their eyes more positively, I think, to other traditions of archaeology and, and looking for the, the good in it and, and finding ways to, to work together and kind of build a, a to be able to, to make students who can build a good collaboration with a variety of teams working in a variety of different styles. If I might come in with a shameless plug for our podcasts, um, <laughs> we had a great chat um, with Christina Douglas, who's mm. at, um, is a Penn State um college at, in in the in the states and she does work out in madagascar and um she's a fascinating individual but she's so eloquent in her chat with us around how she works with um indigenous people specialists archaeologists and how one of her proudest aspects of her work is how she's she's been small scale and built up by working with the, the indigenous population and training them, learning from them. And as a result, actually, whereas COVID has halted a lot of research in during these last few months, whereas her team can't fly out there from the States to Madagascar to do work, the work carries on because mm -hmm. the locals are trained and, and they've adopted that. And um, there's a lot to be said about that, that sort of approach and, and bringing together knowledge and sharing knowledge and just really sort of future-proofing and your projects these days. So definitely have a, have a listen to our most recent podcast <laughs> shameless plug <laughs> but it will bundle link bundle link up lawrence so people can get onto it there's something quite interesting about what you said about the remote viewing and the remote interaction between say somebody like yourselves and um i'm thinking derek you haven't been out to greece this year you established a marvelous site out there with a group of wonderful greek archaeologists um how how near do you think you could get to, you wouldn't want to do it obviously because you'd miss the beautiful greek uh, environments and all the rest of it but how near could you get sitting in bournemouth and asking them to film it 
and for you to ask them to look at particular things and then feed that information back to you and interact that way. Is it possible that we'll begin to have to do things more like that? Um, where, whether we have to or not, I'm not sure, but I, I would certainly say it's possible. And I think Christine is a good example of that. And I, I trust my archaeological colleagues on the ground 100%. And I, we could, we work together in such a collaborative way that they'd understand why I'm asking certain questions, even if it's not the question they'd necessarily want to ask. So if I needed a, a let's say, a specific bit of data to try and understand the paleo environment or the, the ancient environment around the site, and I sent them out to do a soil core. Now it's not something they traditionally do, but we have a good solid working relationship and we understand each other. We each have our different goals and our different um, aims. And I think just going back to that, that previous question and the previous point, archeology span as a discipline in the past has, has had a tendency to go and assert itself on other places. And Greek archeology span is a tremendous example of that. It's very, in its its colonial in its manner um for sure and how it has been over the years but i think now the best archaeology that's happening at the moment are partnerships and collaborations and if you've got good partnerships and good collaborations remote collaboration is entirely possible and and a, a great hope for a, a covid summer next year if we're still in this uh, in this mess and technically um Lawrence, I'm going to put you in charge of um, a, a department which is called the Remote Viewing, Sensing and Evaluation Department. And I think there's an acronym there somewhere, but I can't, something like Remora or something. Um, technically speaking, because I know you're very interested in the technology of, of this interaction with archaeology, you did, you did all sorts of things with Minecraft and looking at other ways of looking at archaeology. Technically, what could we get out there that would let you and Derek get as near as possible to looking at what's going on and interact with it? And all the technology is there, even if you just look at something like, like this. Um, it, it, this week, the latest iPhone was released, and the new iPhones have inbuilt lidar. Um, so Good. you can go to, yeah. So you could go to a site and record something in three dimensional and have it spatially accurate in theory. You can the, the level of the quality of your camera on your phone in on new phones is far greater than anything like the digital SLRs that I was using when I came out of university. Um, the, the connectivity of the world. I, I have better phone signal in Greece than I do in my back garden. Um, so the ability to connect, to share uh, through um, readily available softwares and, and, and technologies is definitely out there. Free to use softwares such as GISs, such as QGIS, open resources such as those that I mentioned earlier, like National Library of Scotland. It's all there to help us understand it. And if anything, COVID has taught us ways of working around and connecting, being more connected. Yeah. I've never been in so many meetings in my life as I have in the last six months. <laughs> That's a bad thing because the results of that have been great. Yeah. And the ideas and the, the ability to improve connectivity and understanding and, and outreach is, is, has been really interesting. Can you imagine a situation where your colleagues in Greece had a head camera and they had what, what we used to call in the old days a lipstick camera, but a small camera on the end of the trowel. 
and you were actually listening to one of your colleagues talking about what they were seeing and how they were getting it. How near could you actually, I mean, considering the Mars rover is going to be having a dig mm. around when it arrives and sending stuff back, is, is it, what, what would you want to see from your Greek colleagues that would be useful? They could talk about it at the end of the day, but how near could you get to seeing what's actually in the trench? I think it's a, it's a really interesting proposition. And I don't know if either of you have seen recently an advert for the new Mario Kart game. <laughs> it's a bit off piece, but it's, it's an augmented reality game where you have a remote control car and you see it first person from your um, modern equivalent to a Game Boy and you drive it around your lounge and you, you make your own tracks. And that idea of kind of augmenting someone's experience in the field with kind of... <laughs> almost a remote control human in a sense it sounds very androidy but I, I think it would be valuable and it would be useful but going back to something we said very early on in this chat that that feeling that phil had when he felt the slight textural change of a soil and not being able to jump in and have a feel of that and say oh you're right oh wow it does end there doesn't it i archaeology is more than vision and it's tactile it's experiential I, there are things I've missed beyond the good food and the nice wine about being there. Um, it, it could make a good substitute, but I think the, the ability to put two or three different heads together and experience the same soil change or the same thing in more than a visual way. I, I, technologically, um, we might be getting close with various gloves and handsets and um, tactile responses and things, but... I'd, I'd want more than vision, I think, to, to be truly confident in it, in, in feeling as if I'm part of it in the same way I would be if I was there. Okay, and a couple of final thoughts. Uh, why do you think it would be a good idea for someone to watch the St. Mary's episode? Fashion. John Gates' hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he looks awesome. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Thank you for that. Uh, Lawrence, another reason for watching it. Um, I, what I like is um, this. This I like Stuart's approach to ident using those aerial photographs to, and just getting so committed to it and, and doing more and more research to back up his ideas, and then geophysics coming through in the end to just back him back as well. So there's a nice little uh, to him, toing and froing from John and Stuart. On Friday afternoons, I we used to have this at my school on Friday. They they sent us to art, which was just a great thing to do on a Friday afternoon when you'd had enough. And I would have a Victor lesson mm. because every archaeological student needs to communicate yeah. what it might have looked like. All right, we can do it with CGI, mm. but could we get our guys sketching and drawing what a what a thing looked like and there's other departments as well but those are my my final thoughts you can have one thought each on wacky departments we haven't mentioned so far well i, I like your art one and not least because of the cgi that's in this episode i'm sure when everyone catches up on it and compares it to some of the ones in the later ones it's it's, it's of its time wacky department um <laughs> i my selfish side wants a, a rock climbing wall, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have advanced tea making. <laughs> rope, rope skills, definitely. Yeah, they can come into it, definitely. That, yeah, okay. that's, yeah, extreme archaeology. So, yeah, there's some climbing rope skills. Yes, yeah. 
yeah. things that um, I can't fall off of, ideally. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And and as you manage to fall off a bike, I think we probably would have to look after you fairly carefully. Um, so Career in Ruins, Derek and Lawrence, thank you very much indeed for getting this together on a Friday evening. Lovely to talk to you. We'll move forward. Now we're in the excavation into the tricky side of things. Keep your thoughts coming about, you know, our department, because I think we should start interviewing fairly soon. Um, I, I would like a nice old building that looked a bit like Hogwarts. Ooh, yeah. You know, uh, preferably with some archaeological sites around it. And, and, and I still think the wizard control of a wand, I should have one of my, my uh, that's it, yes. Well, but the wizard control of an actual trowel, uh, trowel classes. I think that's what we want. Mine's disappeared. Some the line troweling, the digging troweling, corner troweling. Okay, guys. Well, thank you very much. We'll be bunging up connections with the uh, career in ruins. Who have you got lined up next, or is that a big secret or something? Uh, we're hopefully going to be talking to an old friend of mine from Wessex Archaeology, uh, Gareth Chafee, who's currently doing or helping with a reconstruction of a Neolithic house at. Uh, Buxter Ancient Farm. So, oh. really interesting chat. We're hopefully recording it in the next week or two. Yep, and then that's Richie, who's the archaeologist for Forest and Land Scotland, who's done some amazing outreach work, including his one I had earlier things like educational resources that use oh. Lego. <laughs> Stunning. Okay, good. guys, thank you so much. Have a great weekend and uh, best wishes to Career and Ruins. and. Uh, be talking again soon. Thanks, Tim. Cheers, Tim. Cheers.